Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to another edition of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to another edition of the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. Please do bookmark our podcast archives. That link is radio.acton.org, and we've got archives stretching back a number of years there. Also, want to remind you to check out the Acton Institute Power Blog if you don't do so regularly already. The Power Blog is a fantastic place to go to find news and information from the Acton Institute. Also, a ton of Acton commentary and some great discussion as well. It's blog.acton.org. Please do bookmark it. Check it out on a daily basis. It's a great blog, and it's well worth your time to check it out and read what's there. Lots of food for thought on the Power Blog. Well, Acton University is our biggest event of the year. Those of you who know Acton are well aware of that fact. And every year at Acton University, one of the things we've been doing, at least for the last couple of years, is we've given participants the opportunity to attend lectures uh, that detail the thought and life of certain great thinkers in the liberal, the classically liberal tradition. People like Alexis de Tocqueville, people like Edmund Burke. And Burke is important today because Burke is the topic of our podcast. Um, The person who is charged with delivering the Edmund Burke lecture, at least for the last couple of years, has been our very own Michael Matheson Miller. And uh, if you're interested in hearing what Michael Matheson Miller had to say about Burke, I want to encourage you to head over to university.acton.org. There's a link right there on the front page. Uh, to our digital download store. And uh, Michael's lecture from this June uh, of 2014 was Edmund Burke and the Moral Imagination. That's available right there on the download store. And I believe we've got a couple previous versions of that lecture or maybe a a little bit of of a different spin on things from Michael in previous years as well in in previous Acton University download stores. So head on over to university.acton.org to check that out. But um, Edmund Burke is is of interest to Michael, has been for a number of years, and Michael now has the opportunity to sit here in the Radio Free Acton interviewer's chair and talk with somebody else who's taken a real interest in Edmund Burke. That man is David Bromwich, the Sterling Professor of English at Yale University, who is in the midst of writing a two-volume, uh, I, I guess you could call it an intellectual biography of Edmund Burke, covering his thought Over the course of his life, the first volume has been released. It's called The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke. It's available on all your major online booksellers, Amazon, of course, Barnes & Noble. And uh, it is, as I said, the first volume of what will be two volumes on The Intellectual Life of Edmund Burke. This first volume covers the time period between 1729 and 1797, an eventful number of decades in uh, the history of the United Kingdom. And uh, Michael took the time to sit down and talk with David Bromwich about the idea of moral imagination, about politics, uh, the coarsening of politics, and about what Edmund Burke has to say to us today. So without further ado, uh, let me turn the microphone over to Michael Matheson Miller as he speaks with Yale Sterling Professor of English, David Bromwich. Maybe we could just begin by asking why Burke? I mean, you're a professor of literature, right, at Yale, and I know you've written on poetry and, and other things. I know you've written on the moral imagination. What what inspired you to do this long two-volume work on Burke? Well, I've had an interest in politics that goes pretty far back to my teenage years. Um, it's been more uh, a more 
uh, intensive and uh, committed interest in politics in the last uh, 12, 13 years when I felt the politics of this country, of the United States, are changing in a way for the worse. Um, but all along, uh, since I started teaching uh, English literature and also teaching courses on politics and moral philosophy in an interdisciplinary honors program, uh, I have been reading Burke as I've been reading Shakespeare uh, and others who help me think about politics, uh, morals, and imagination. And I don't see these things as unrelated to each other. I suppose I'd say Burke is the greatest uh, exemplar of imagination in the work of politics. Uh, others have said and thought this before me, Conor Cruz O'Brien is one, but uh, in detail, the things I find in Burke are what I find uh, nowhere else, including uh, the work of his commentators. What do you think, when you say he's the, he's the greatest exemplar of imagination in politics, can you talk a little bit about that? What do you mean by that? Well, Burke has a view of human nature um, as, uh, to some extent, untamed and uh, untamable, um, but at the same time subject to necessary restraints if, if people in society are going to get along with each other peaceably and sustain their society as an instrument for progress. Um, this is a general view that he applies uh, without prejudice to societies of the most various sorts. Um, in the 18th century, this is not unusual. I mean, Burke is in the party of Montesquieu and others in thinking that uh, Western advanced societies, as the 19th century came to call them, uh, are in some ways uh, no more advanced and in some ways less so uh, than the uh, still less known societies of uh, the Far East and of uh, South Asia, as in the case of India, and so on. Um, but society as a human necessity, uh, Burke looks on as a human artifice, something we make in order to perpetuate what is best in ourselves. And uh, as a, in, indeed, I mean, in his more exalted moods, Burke can talk about society as if it is a work of art. So there's an imaginative element in construing society in that manner to begin with. Um, Burke isn't alone in this. Uh, Machiavelli does it too. But Machiavelli isn't uh, an analyst or an advocate uh, for a society at peace. He sees uh, men struggling for power being at constant war with each other or classes being at constant war with each other, the populi and the grandees. Um, there is no such uh, presumption in Burke. I think he believes people on the whole want to get along together. Human nature is made for that. But it takes a work of psychological discernment and of uh, social understanding to recognize what the ways are for us to do that best and what most impedes it. So all that, as I take it, is work not just of rational analysis, though reason enters into it, but uh, a task for imagination. And here you see especially that social nature of the person that you alluded to and um, the idea, you said man is untamed and untamable. To some extent. To some extent, <laughs> yeah. right, to some extent. I, mean, it's I, comp I compromised on that, yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> uh, and you see... One is, in contrast to, say, Rousseauian understandings of the person or 
Hobbes and Locke, for example, they, so Burke doesn't go down the state of nature realm. He talks a little bit about a state of nature and a social contract, um, as you note, but he doesn't take that state of nature that there's somehow this kind of radical individual that pops out of nowhere and, and then begins to look for a contract, for example. In, in yeah, I, 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 would, uh, uh, I would be wary of drawing the contrast too strongly because all the thinkers you've just mentioned – the state of nature theorists, the, the contract theorists, uh, Hobbes, uh, Locke, and then uh, in the 18th century, not, not long before Burke, Rousseau, uh, all of them do think of uh, uh, human beings as social creatures, not as isolated individuals who just pop up out of nature. But there is, say, in uh, Rousseau, a tremendous, constant awareness of um, the incapacity imposed on men and women by having to deal with each other in society. There is, this, there is a heightened sensitivity against the disadvantages of society. So, I mean, you could say Rousseau and Burke actually agree in thinking of society as an artifice, as a man-made thing. But Rousseau is, is turning his uh, readers uh, to be alert against uh, all that it does to impede their pleasure, freedom, etc. Whereas Burke, how to say it, more Aristotelian and guided by uh, empirical prudence, uh, has us think of the advantages we gain from this social state. So, you, if you want to, if you want to make an intellectual history lineup, um, you know, Burke in that respect is more of the party of Montesquieu and Hume. And Rousseau, though he's a much more radical uh, Democrat uh, than many who came before him, uh, really goes back to uh, writers uh, in an earlier tradition that isn't uh, um, concerned with reform at all, but has, has at heart an idea of perfection. In Rousseau's case, uh, a perfection that has been lost almost with the birth of social man and that can only be gained by the reconstruction of something like the natural state by social means, and that's what gives you Rousseau's construct of the uh, of the social contract. Um, we are forced to be free, um, and we speak of ourselves only as members of society. Uh, it is selfish and destructive to do otherwise. Um, and Burke, in that sense, I think you'd say is is both a um, a defender of the eccentricity, the caprice. Um, if you will, the inclinations of individuals, mm -hmm. uh, but also of the ordinary duties, uh, obligations that we have to each other in society, uh, which aren't bound by a contract, but by custom, habit, convention. Those are words that Burke very steadily uses. Well, and would you say um, that Burke, say, in contrast to Rousseau, ha sees that the social, the society, whether how, how I mean, I... Perhaps they have a different view on how it's an artifact, but this artifact of society for Rousseau is a barrier to emancipation. For Rousseau, I'm sorry, for Burke is an opportunity for flourishing, development, etc. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, uh, uh, look, Rousseau's first discourse, uh, what you know, made his breakthrough to fame uh, in the Geneva competition, uh, was written uh, to lay out. Uh, the evils, the disadvantages of the arts and sciences, that is to say, um, 
human-made things, what we call the arts, and, and human-discovered things, uh, what he calls science, what we would just call knowledge. The disadvantages of works of imagination, including social imagination, and knowledge. And it's a, it's a very uh, uh, pointed, acute uh-huh. piece of observation, though nowhere near as great as his second discourse on inequality. You know, but, I have a... Oh, go ahead. No, please. No, all I was going to say to finish is that Burke... Um, though he could see some of the same things, and in satirical asides, phrases, and sentences, shows a Rousseauian awareness of those inhibitions that seem unnatural to us and that we're not wrong to rebel against. Nevertheless, Burke would never have written a treatise against the arts and sciences. Burke, in that regard, although this goes against one of the prevailing cliches about him, Burke, in that regard, is a much more um, unmixed uh, contributor to the Enlightenment of the 18th century uh, than Rousseau is. Uh, and it's partly because Burke is satisfied with the effects of gradual progress. Uh, he is not a utopian thinker. And Rousseau, I think, teaches uh, uh, a turn of mind uh, that uh, uh, fosters dissatisfaction, sharpens dissatisfaction, and leads away from any sort of contentment with gradual progress. Right. Um, you know, maybe this is for another, if we have a follow-up, but I'm, one of the things that's it's interesting is um, you, you talk about Burke as a conservative, which I want to go to in more detail, and not a conservative, actually. Um, one of the things you, you see and say a certain overlap in in modern society, both with some parts of the progressive left and some parts of the con- traditionalist conservatives, as uh, this slight rejection uh, I mean, oh, sorry, sorry, this worry about the arts and sciences just like Rousseau has and it seems that Rousseau um, is uh, vilified by conservatives but conservatives and some progressives tend to adopt his critique of arts and sciences and technology and things like that uh, dissatisfaction with you know what uh, what what should we say? What journalists uh, or just contemporaries might sometimes call the state of the culture, uh, which which goes with a kind of um, it can go with a kind of um, you know broad rejectionism about culture in general. Um, you know, uh, to speak again in very rough terms, that is a Rousseauian mood, um, and Burke Burke is not uh, is not anti-cultural in that sense. He's not so skeptical um, of the good along with the bad that's produced by human knowledge and imagination. Let, let me go back to a question that you, ha- you said before. You said one of the things that got you interested in, in politics in the last 12 or 13 years, and especially, in, again, back into Burke, was you thought things were changing for the worse. Yep. What are some of the things that stood out to you that that reawakened this interest in politics and, and, and specifically how Burke played a role in that? Well, I won't, I won't go on too long about this because it's not part of my, I'm not part of this book, but, um, uh, and I shouldn't say I've just become interested in politics, only that my interest had been focused more on moments of crisis <laughs> uh, earlier in my life where interest was intense um, during the Vietnam War, um, during the Watergate uh, hearings, um, in the uh, uh, Reagan interventions uh, south of the border, 1983-45, um, 
you know, there were moments. But I think since, since uh, the American reaction uh, to the bombing attacks of September 2001, I have felt that this country's uh, commitment to liberty uh, is weakening and that it's uh, uh, almost unconscious, insensible slide into the bad work of an empire um, has been growing more weighty and more of a burden to us all the time. I mean, I don't don't mark any of these as unique in American history. There have been moments of, uh, you know, distrust of liberty and uh, increasing repression, uh, surveillance, uh, etc., before now, and there have been uh, imperial moments in American history, in the Mexican War, in the Philippines War, etc. But I think something changed after 2001, and uh, I have felt the crisis has not gone away. Um, so in reading Burke and reading events of our time, I've sort of read them back and forth against each other at times and taken counsel from him and made analogies in my mind um, and recognized with some uh, real displeasure and chagrin that, you know, if you try to place us, the United States now, in the history of 1774, 75, 76, 77, we are the British Empire. (laughs) Uh, I won't take the analogy further because analogies always break down because nothing is completely like anything else. But we're doing the work of holding together something which the people we are holding it for the sake of don't believe should be done. So those are some of the ways in which the two, um, the interest in you know, the early 21st century and the late 18th century have worked for me. Hmm. Let's, let's go then back to your, I'd like, that's a, I'd like to follow up on that too, because I think you, have, you pointed out a couple of things I'd like to talk about. Let's go back to your book right now. And um, in the introduction, you say um, that, let me find the page here, you say that no, his, no serious historian today would repeat the commonplace that Burke was the father of modern conservatism. Yes, I've been hit on that by a couple of previous interviewers, and I may be by reviewers. I didn't say nobody ever called Burke the father of, of modern conservatism. I said no serious historian would. So like, so um, Kirk, for example, Russell Kirk, who I think yeah. was interesting that, I, I thought it was interesting that he was really you know, a literature guy as well, uh, yeah. a, a doctorate of letters from St. Andrews. In yeah. his book, the idea, you know, the um, conservative mind, where he yeah. where he really sets Burke out as this, he has a certain idea of conservatism that yeah, wouldn't be a, the same thing as, say, a modern Republican, right? I mean, oh, no. Well, you can you can read Kirk and read it against you know any of the last three or four platforms of the Republican Party, and the difference will seem vast. Um, you know, Kirk has interesting things to say about Burke, and as a um, you know, uh, valuable uh, force in keeping Burke alive for Americans. Um, but I, you know, when I when I said historian, I really meant um, historian conversant with the 18th century and with uh, events of the mid 20th century on. And Russell Kirk is writing there a sort of series of inspirational intellectual portraits. Um, he certainly does claim Burke as as. Uh, Father modern conservative modern conservatism and Kirk was speaking, you know, in a pretty close alliance then, I suppose, with the editors of National Review, uh, with some uh, Catholic uh, commentators, including Burke scholars, uh, uh, 
like Francis Canavan. Um, and uh, there's, there's much to be said for it, but it's, it's pleading a, a case from present interests, partly uh, the... Um, Do you think Canavan or Burke or both, you're saying? Well, I mean, Kirk and Canavan talking about Burke are, are you know, stationed in 1950s American conservatism that has a Catholic dimension and that has particular ideas about education and so on, and they're finding materials in Burke, I think by honest means. But if you stand in the middle of Burke's career and look forward, um, you don't necessarily arrive at uh, views comparable to Russell Kirk's or, or Francis Canavan's. That's the sort of thing I mean. Um, so, you know, list, I mean, you can do it probably as well as I or better, list some uh, salient traits of modern conservatism, either American or British, if you, could, <laughs> if you could find a coherent enough set, because so many people go by that name, and then see, are these things Burke stood for? I mean, I would come up with a couple. Um, one would be constitutional libertarianism, uh, that there ought to be checks on all possible abuse of power. That's a view of some right? Modern American libertarians who take the name of conservative as well. Um, and it certainly is compatible with Burke. Uh, but then take the view that what is good for the, for the big corporations is good for America. Uh, and the voting records of the Republicans in Congress will show how much they stand for that. Well, that's not clearly Burkean. At the very least, he was highly critical of big corporations, monopolies, et cetera, in his time. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, this is a, I want you to talk mostly, but uh, sometimes um, I find conservative readers of Burke are surprised and even maybe bothered by the fact that Burke was quite a supporter of free market, free trade, especially free his trade. Thoughts, yep. on his thoughts on scarcity. But what what a lot of people think about as free market, free trade is really crony capitalism. And Burke was, yep. I think, I think you, you could develop this for me. He seemed quite uh, critical of this kind of state managerial crony capitalism that, in fact, you see people on the right and the left uh, supporting in different forms. And at this point, we are going to take a break in our interview with David Bromwich, Sterling Professor of English at Yale University. Uh, we will get to his answer on Edmund Burke and crony capitalism in our next edition of Radio Free Acton. That'll be next week. Uh, for now, I want to thank Michael Matheson Miller for conducting the interview. He's doing a fine job. Thanks to David Bromwich for taking the time out of his busy schedule to talk with us about Edmund Burke. And, of course, thanks to you for joining us once again for another edition of Radio Free Acton. My name is Mark Vandermoss. It's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast, and we look forward to joining you again next time on Radio Free Acton. Stay.